Don't you just love it when you come back from the bathroom to find your food waiting for you? When did you make this decision? When you were sitting there eating that muffin? Would you forget your french fries to go with the soda? I had them already. Hamburgers! The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. Come on, man, let's go get a steak. You can get a steak here, Daddy-o. God damn, it's a pretty fucking good milkshake. Mmm. God damn, Jimmy. This some serious gourmet shit. Mmm. This is a tasty burger. Want some bacon? You know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in a pan? I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Attends de la crème. Bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. All right, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Hey, everybody, I'm Mike Burge, and today we are introducing a brand new podcast miniseries on Story Screen Presents, much in the same a la of our Fast and Furious series, uh, Quarter Mile at a Time, where we covered all the Fast and Furious movies, and uh, much also like uh, Batarang, where we covered all of the Batman movies. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing both those, and so now we are back, uh, same crew for the first installment on this, but... Be ready for some super special guests coming on in the future. Uh, we're covering the Quentin Tarantino movies. Movies that he directed, movies that he wrote. We're going to be doing one a month, leading all the way up until the release of his next movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which will be coming out sometime August next year, 2019. Maybe his last. Maybe. Uh, no, he'll have one more after that. Ten, right? Yeah. Okay. I think he said he was going to do 10. I think he said he was going to do 10. I'm joined today by, of course, who you're listening to right now. Robert Anderson. Yeah. And of also with us is the luscious, lovely vegan. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, Jack Kaljeski. Thank jokes, you, guys. The jokester. The jokester. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I am As Tommy Lee Jones, Two-Face, Mike hey. Birch, and also the Alfred. But I'm the Alfred in this one. You're the Alfred in this one. But I'll give you a nice hello, sir. Mm. Also I'm, known I'm as Stephen Wright in this La episode. Familia. There you go. La Familia. La Familia. Mm -hmm. This is Brazil. Cheers, Cheers to you, boys. Cheers. Kicking off a new mm -hmm. one. Mm. So what we're doing on this one is a little bit different uh, structurally, but it's still going to pretty much be more the same uh, after the beginning of every episode. Because right off the front, what we're doing is the name of the show is Cooking with Quentin. And so what we're doing is, is we're watching all of Quentin Tarantino's movies chronologically with some little mixes in there. And we are preparing uh, meals for each screening because we're watching the movie right before we jump on the mic. And before we watch the movie, we prepare a meal that is themed with uh, something that's going on in the movie. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example for Reservoir Dogs. We made uh, tacos because at one point, Mr. White, Harvey Keitel says, let's get a taco. So I developed a recipe called uh, what I'm calling Red Apple Tacos, uh, which is uh, it was a uh, pork tacos. Uh, with some red apples on them as well. Some other things too that we'll get into. And if you want to check out real quick, um, hop over to our Vimeo page under story screen. You can check out the video that we've made of the recipe. Kind of like uh, those like little videos that you see out there and everything like that. How to make it and stuff I'll, like that. Uh, 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 tasties, tasties, yeah, yeah. Those videos that you watch and you're like, fuck. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, so we've ripped them off. Uh, and specifically, doing our own thing. specifically when Mike says we, he means he did. Well, I made it this time, but you guys are going to make some later. 
Is that really? true? Yeah, I thought no, that's what we were going to do. Wait, am I cooking all of the food here? The pitch was, you were like, I'll make you guys some dinner. You can come over. It's going to be a nice time. I thought we were getting treated. No, well, I want to treat you, and I did it the first time. And one I, time. I love cooking, especially cooking for my friends, and especially cooking with Quentin. Mm. Um, but I thought it'd be a lot of fun if you guys also like came up with ones that you wanted to do, especially because... Oh, that's cool with me. Before we go I'm too far... I'm not cooking, but I can figure something out. Yeah, you can do something. I do something. Yeah, make, make a milkshake. Make a milkshake. Five dollar right. milkshake. I'll make a milkshake. Pretty fucking good. I'll make a milkshake. Um, for you, because we're also doing. There are because we have a V E G A N amongst us. This is say this is he's loud. really gonna jinx me on this. Well, one. no, I think it's very important uh, as part of this is that every recipe that we are doing, if it calls for having meat in the original recipe, we are also creating a vegan. Fully vegan, no dairy, no meat option as well to go along with the recipe so that all of our listeners can enjoy. And it's true that even if Jack, you know, goes back on being vegan, we will force him to eat the vegan portion of the food either way. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. vegan for the rest next Jack, year. Jack's like only vegan. That's no absolutely. worries. I'm I'm committed. I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm two months in now. That's longer than it takes to make a habit. So we're going to get yeah, like yeah. By, by a year from now, when we finally get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jack will have changed his diet even more aggressively and he'll only eat salt. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. He tr- He's going to try and transition to eating nothing that casts a shadow, mm. which well, I, I, I think I, is admirable. I had recently told my parents who are taking it hard that I've changed <laughs> oh, my those, diet. Those poor, those poor that people. That I've changed my, my diet once again and then now it's going to be even harder for them to cook for me when it comes to home home cooked meals. At least this is pretty much the most extreme dietary change I can make. Like it's, it's pretty much I've hit the wall here. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I could go, so. I I could go gluten free technically, but like you like fun. I do. No, I don't actually. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I was about to say. I was like, I do not. Who are you talking? It's to? Actually, part of my character. That's part of the bit. I do not like that at all. But jokester doesn't like fun. No, no fun. fun. No, that's why I'm. That's the ironic part. Of oh, it. Okay. irony. Yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But yeah, I appreciate you went the extra mile for me, Mike. So let's talk about the food real quick so we can get to the talking about the movie, which is yeah. what everybody is here for. Sorry, if you want to, if you want to skip over this, you can. But you should oh, listen wait, to what it. What do you mean? They don't, they don't like uh, our 130 episode run food podcast? Yeah. This yeah. has been running for a hundred. Uh, for, for the for story screen, the, the restaurant that's opening up in Beacon? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, we are going to be serving like some pretty baller food there. Yeah, so, so. there you go. Uh, do you have any vegan options? Oh, plenty. Oh, sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the tacos were delicious. Uh, had some red apple shavings on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can probably speak more to like the actual process. Of uh, if you want to get that out of the way, I made some sure. beans. I made some really good vegan uh, Mexican style, Mexican family style rice, as it's yeah. kind of like weirdly known. Uh, it's an awesome recipe for rice that I had. That'll also be below. The video as you well. Gave if it you gave it kind of like the a, rest, the, a the pan rice. sear as well, which I, I appreciate. fried it at the I end. Like, rice, I like the, that. Yeah, fried rice was nice. You give it a good. nice little crisp. It's really good. You don't have to do it, but you, yeah. I enjoyed and the, the slice, the, the sliced apples were actually like kind of like a replacement for where you usually have a radish mm-hmm. on taco, which was really nice. I originally it had like a little bit of extra sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. I originally thought. It was radishes, and then I took a bite, and I was like, "This motherfucker apple. put apples this on this shit." And I called. I did red apple tacos because the red oh, yes. apple cigarettes in Quentin Tarantino mm. movies are like the fake cigarette brands that they don't have to do any marketing or advertising right. or anything like that because mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino hates advertising. And l- let me just get take a second to please shout out those beans. Yeah, nice, secret, some secret nice beans, salt, salt, which Jack. Is going to really like one year from now. Yeah, on my good. entire. Self. <laughs> I mean, he likes it now, but that's going to be like yeah. his thing. He's going to yeah. have to love it. Yeah, if I really decide to check out completely mm-hmm. from this earth, 
engage full salt diet. Mm-hmm. But it was a very good kind of traditional style, like double wrapped uh, tortilla. Corn tortilla, corn, corn tortilla, double wrapped, a little bit of yeah. sour cream, pork that I uh, made a marinade uh, from scratch. Marinade. Marinade. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I made some lemonade out of. I should call it lemonade instead of marinade because that's funny. Uh, lemonade. And then uh, some pork, uh, some red cabbage, uh, some jalapeno, and the apples, as we said. And w- the only substitute on the vegan side was uh, no sour cream, but came with tons of uh, um, uh, hot sauces and srirachas and oh, stuff yes. like that you could put on Next there. Next time was, I will bring along some, some non-dairy sour cream. Yeah, definitely that, do that. that. Exists, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tofu was marinated in the same marinade because it was vegan. Mm-hmm. And then we just uh, toss a little bit of pineapples on top of there to kind of uh, pull it all together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Very good. It was a very good meal. It was very appreciative of what you made for us. It was very delicious. It kind of knocked me out as we were starting Reservoir Dogs. I was like, oh, shit. We uh, got our uh, energy back. Uh, <laughs> Mike wanted to go to bed. You know, actually, what's interesting... Why did you say it so quick? Um, yeah, Mike wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> Mike wanted to go to bed. Um, what's interesting uh, about not eating meat is it doesn't put you to sleep as much. Mm. And dairy as well, I've noticed. But I feel like a lot of the extra carbs... And you know, you me, you, you both seen me. Oh, I, sleepy guy, generally. Yeah. I've seen you eat a DiGiorno back when you weren't vegan. You've eat well, a DiGiorno and then just be like, I don't want to do a podcast. You've, you've and seen we make me you do it anyway. prior to watching movies or during watching movies, yeah. just pretty much fall asleep. Yep. Yep. So. Big lover of movies. You fell asleep during also the first fucking Also a big lover Batman. of sleeping. Mm-hmm. I do well, enjoy that's sleeping. like I was going to say, big fan of meat, big fan of sleeping. So I'm like, yeah, that's kind of like a Both twofer. That's things, a win. Yeah, they, they go hand in hand. But pro tip, I'll cook for you. Don't worry. Yeah, that's. I think that would be fucking amazing because yeah. we can get a really good vegan meal in there. I think that would be a lot of fun. I'm really excited about it too because I like to cook. I've cooked for a while. I've worked in kitchens professionally from time to time. So I just love cooking. I especially love cooking for friends. There's something about making friends a meal and you all sit down and you share it. As uh, one La of familia. your as one of your friends, uh, this is not the first time we've come over for a home cooked burge meal. Oh no! And uh, this is the first movie related one. Mm-hmm. But previous to this. Always good. Um, very good meals. The ramen Burge makes good ass ramen. is fire. And let me tell you, let me let me get in real close. Let me tell you guys about the meatloaf. Oh. That this mother, shut the fuck up. Mm. Let me tell you about the meatloaf that this motherfucker makes. It is delicious. I'm getting some ASMR chills over here. It's actually, it's my ting. I'm tingling a little bit. I need you. I need you. <laughs> Just relax. Save that for the end. I won't be able to perform after I get those tingles. Very good. Uh, uh, no, I'm glad you guys liked them. Uh, can't wait to cook for you guys again. We'll 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 figure out what we're gonna do as we move on. Next, we'll announce what the next movie is going to be at the end of this episode. You might but, even uh, be open to suggestions, if right? You I, yeah, absolutely. If you guys have any suggestions for what we should try and try out as far as recipes go and everything like that, definitely hit us up either on the comments of wherever you are right now, over on Vimeo. If you have suggestions for us to maybe change up the recipe a little bit, make it a community thing. Uh, for sure. Uh, we're we're kind of we've started asking people to start talking to us uh, on the podcast recently and uh oh my god it worked people are actually like they're like oh they feel so bad because we don't we just we listen and we throw them away we want to talk to you yeah show some love yeah uh, if, the only- you, if you listen to the end of this podcast I'll, i will uh put out mike's personal number you can give him a phone call you can uh we can give you a street address yeah, you can street stop address by, yeah, mail him knock on the door call him on the phone mm-hmm Already available on the website because I'm a madman. So you yeah, that was a, that was, that was a bit that, my street address. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go put it up there right now. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Mike knows no fear. Bring it on. Uh, but let's get down. Let's get down down to business, guys. We're we're talking. Let's get rambling. We're talking. Let's get rambling. 
I figured I'd start every episode off with like a different like related quote from to, the movie. Yeah, it makes sense. But they're all just gonna be all right, ramblers. I'm just gonna replace ramblers with something else. Like the thing is, all right, pulps. Let's get fiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. You should. All right, hateful. Let's get eights. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, Django. Let's get in chains. Yeah. Let's get bastards. <laughs> Sure. Well, now that's been ruined, so uh, I don't know. Well. Uh, but yeah, today we are talking about uh, Reservoir Dogs, hey. Quentin Tarantino's directorial debut, so to speak, uh, in 1992, wrote and directed it. This is the movie that has all of the people that have colors for names. So it's Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, um, amongst <clears throat> others. Uh, tiny bit of Quentin himself. Tiny bit of Quentin himself in there. Who graciously killed himself in his own movie quickly <clears throat> yeah and he also like also is like the first one to talk to which there's a little bit of that ego in there that not I'm so sure graciously we'll really get first into. one to talk oh yeah he yeah. did uh, give himself some atrocious in terms of just like being a bad person he gave himself like the worst things someone well, said in the he, movie he really front. like nailed it in which will continue forth we'll, we'll i'm probably get more into this but uh Every line that he has, everybody else in the room is just like, what the fuck is this guy Yeah, talking? man, this guy's yeah. annoying. Just it's almost as if get him to stop talking, Quentin please. Tarantino has paid attention to how people actually respond to him when he talks about movies. Because uh-huh. he's an unabashed movie lover, and he just will talk and just keep going. He's like yeah. an encyclopedia of knowledge about it. So, And everybody in interviews that talks about him and talking to him about movies or discussing the movie-making process with him, they're just like, he just knows all of this wacky shit, and it just comes out of nowhere. Uh, Do we know anybody like that, Robbie? I think we know we know one person, at least one. Might be around here. I think we also kind of know two. And we do to the that other definitely one. know two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say talking about Jeremy. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about Jeremy. Yeah. The other guy. Who's the second one? Yeah, Who's this other guy? This other guy we know. Other guy. Oh, I'd love to. I'd like to meet him. Yeah, yeah I'm sure I would. I love. I really bet I you love, would. I love movies. Yeah. Is he good looking? He's handsome. Yeah, he's all right. He fucks. Yeah. He has been known to fuck. He's been known to fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to meet him anymore. Sounds sounds like a sounds like a scary guy. <laughs> it's a little intimidating. He can be intimidating sometimes. Yeah. Um, Reservoir Dogs, good movie. Great question movie. mark. I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's a great movie. Okay. It's not my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. <gasps> oh, yeah, of course. Well, I don't think it's my favorite either. Um, I mean, at the start of everything, before we've gone through and we've kind of revisited ones that we might that we haven't seen in a while, or maybe ones that we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie? Are we going to do this, this now? Moment? At this oh, moment, he's, now? he's bringing it up before like, like the, what's the prompt. going into it. What would you say off the top of your head is kind of like Damn. your favorite one? It's not as easy as being like Dark Knight and now Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. It's just not that easy. I'm a constant, and I'll throw this out there. So I'll cheat a little at the beginning to make it easier for everybody else. <gasps> My favorite one depends on my mood. It's Inglorious Passage of Jackie Brown. Those are my two favorite Quentin Tarantino movies. Mm-hmm. Do you think you might change by the end of this kind of run? I think that I'll be able to decide between those two, but okay. I watch his movies a lot. Yeah. Uh, really, the only one that I'm the least familiar with is The Hateful Eight because I've only seen it a couple times. And it's newer, so that kind of And it's newer, sense, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I've seen, you know, the <clears throat> Kill Bill movies and uh, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and Glorious Bastards and Django and Chain, like, uh, Death Proof. I've seen these movies a shit ton. Uh, so I kind of think I have a pretty good grasp on sure. how I feel about them. But I think in discussing with you guys as well, I might kind of learn like, oh, maybe I actually like that one a little bit more. Actually, no, I like that one a little bit less. But you think so. it's pretty much down between these two? I f- get the most joy out of watching any 
Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. They're just fun to watch. They're electric. They've got an attitude mm-hmm. that nobody else has, even though countless people have tried to copy it. Yeah. But Inglorious Bastards and Jackie Brown and Death Proof to that extension too are just like, I love just sitting down and watching those movies, especially with Death Proof because it feels like two mini movies yeah. that kind of connect and are very tonally different. Right. I love fucking Death Proof. Are I we going to watch movie. Planet Terror when we watch Death Proof? I figured we could watch it separate if we want to talk about it and stuff like that. Okay. I'm not a huge fan of Planet Terror. Love me some Robert Rodriguez, right. but sure. I also have only seen it once. Maybe I should go back to it. Yeah. I, mm, it's a, it's tough. I kind of have that like, I like the demo better kind of mentality of I like Pulp Fiction probably the most out of all Quentin Tarantino's movies because that was the first Quentin Tarantino movie I ever saw. Of course. And it definitely left an impression on me and I like that movie quite a bit. Also do really like Inglourious Bastards. Yeah. A lot. Because that was probably actually the first Quentin Tarantino movie that I saw in theaters. Oh. So, like, there's a difference there. Came out about around the time where about right the we r- could go right see time that I could go see one on my own. That's like, I'm yeah. a little older than you guys, so that was Kill Bill for me. Right, like, right. I didn't see Jackie Brown <clears throat> previously in theaters, but Kill Bill, I remember going opening night to see volume two, like, how's it gonna, what? Yeah, what and, and that said, there have been, in the past few months, there have been a number of times <laughs> that I've thought to myself, like, it's been a while since I've seen Kill Bill. I should go back and watch Kill Bill again. And then I thought, wait, we're about to do this miniseries. Yeah, we've I planned this for a minute. So, mm-hmm. like, there have been numerous times recently where I've been ready to sit down and watch a Quentin Tarantino movie and then thought, like, we're going to do this, so I'm going to hold off on it. A friend of mine at work is just like, yo, you should watch Hateful Eight. And I'm like, what? Because we've known we've been doing this for, like, a few so months. So you've not seen Hateful Eight? Hateful Eight's one of the ones I haven't seen. I also, I guess I should get this out of the way before I talk about the ones I, oh, that Oh, Robbie hasn't seen a movie. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hateful Eight, Jackie Brown, True Romance. Mm-hmm. I think those are the main, I think those so are the I'm, three I haven't I'm seen. I'm with you on True Romance. I have not seen yeah, True Romance. Yeah, and I think that might be coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. For us. I think it is soon. Soon. Um, so in terms of my favorite, I think I I'm of the firm belief that like I think my answer by the end of this like show, not like this specific episode, but by the end of like the series is gonna be like really different. Could change. For sure. But uh where I stand right now is I'm also in a toss up between the Kill Bill, which is volume one and two. I see them as kind of like one complete package. And uh we can well, do two and episodes also, on that or one? We'll find out. We'll, we'll have we? to figure that out. Or uh, I'm also in the same boat with Inglorious Bastards. I think Inglorious Bastards like is a, um, regardless if it's your favorite Tarantino movie or just one you really like, um, it's a turning point for him as a director. Yeah, I think really that's why so many of us are like, that fucking movie. Because it really, it's kind that of That feels like, like the, the start of the modern Exactly. It, modern, it's, it really is. It's kind of when, and we'll get more into it later, that's not the movie we're talking about right now, but... I think with uh, Inglourious Bastards, it really is the kind of movie that, like, he starts doing this, like, historical fiction situation. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to say it becomes grounded, because I don't think that's the right word. But, like, it each... Firmly not grounded. No, but the motif changes yeah, pretty firmly. Sure. Um, but I love Kill Bill because, like, uh, you know, I love, like, big kind of blockbuster movies. Uh, I like small movies as well, but I, I generally gravitate and, like, like to talk about, like, the big guys. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Kill Bill has, like, the gravitas of just, like... A crazy 80s action movie and uh and i I love it for that so i'll say up front because we're gonna go on this journey together i've seen kill bill one and part one and two probably once each 
was not into them. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And that specifically are the those two are the movies that I've thought like recently, like I should go back and revisit them and and like, you know, because I saw them at a different time. Um, but those are the two that I've thought like I should go back, check those two out again and then stop myself to say we're going to do this on audio because mm-hmm. my whole life I mean, is just content. I now. love the Kill Bill movies. I think they are a lot. They are just like expressionistic. Like if you want to talk about Quentin Tarantino's attitude, like that's those are the ones it's, where it's it really him. flares out. It's like there. he lost his mind, or like like the shackles came off. Well, we'll talk about it in context of that too, because that'll be a lot more fun once we've talked about the other ones. But the yeah. whole thing is, is like he made this movie Reservoir Dogs, which is like this hyper violent movie with the ear torture scene. Then he made Pulp Fiction, that's all about like swearing and sex and brutality and more violence won a bunch of awards for it. And then he went to Jackie Brown and he tried to make like this kind of grounded, more realistic. The dialogue is still there. The attitude's still there, but it's kind of just brought down a bit Mm -hmm. and it was like slammed and people were like, this isn't what we want from you. And he's like, fuck, I'm that guy. I'm the violent guy. And he went away for a bit. And then when he comes back, he comes back with a two part, super hyper violent hyper realistic revenge story action movie and it's crazy and it's like i think that was really him when you say that in glorious bastards is him coming back i think that's him returning to form of what he really wants to do yeah not that he wasn't interested in doing kill bill but i think it's like he did that fiction fit in there between reservoir dogs and jackie came after jackie brown right before before reservoir dogs pulp fiction jackie brown yeah okay and then kill bill uh, one and two, uh, Death Proof, mm-hmm. and then you get Glorious Bastards, Django, Hateful Eight. Yeah. yeah, I do also really love Django. Mm-hmm. I like Django. A lot. I like all of his movies I have seen, which is most of them I love. Yeah, you know, and uh, we'll great. get into different degrees of where yeah. I stand as we them. as we go on. I feel like we'll be able to touch on them more, but I thought it was really important at the beginning of all of this. You know, this, this is going to be like you know <clears throat> yeah. a twelve part uh, mini series. We're gonna we're gonna have a lot of time to talk about all these individualistic it's be a movies. Year of us really mm-hmm. talking about these movies. But I always find it interesting listening to podcasts, like going back and listening to ones that were recorded a couple years ago, whether they're by us or by someone else, and kind of seeing like, oh, that's where they were when they were talking about this. Like this is yeah. what they thought of the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, even though I've listened to the podcast about Volume Two. Mm-hmm. You get to see that information removed in the first one it's like oh that's really interesting how yeah. they change oh, their minds it's really interesting during tokyo drift that they were blind drunk that's crazy yeah it's wow. crazy these podcasters got wasted drunk wasted on the microphone for our listeners i think with tarantino movies also is that uh what your favorite tarantino movie is says a lot about you as a person you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe not you as a person, but just kind of, it's just like, you mean, where do you, you mean like, uh, by the number of times I say the N word during the movie? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if that's the thing you're going to bring up. <laughs> yeah, What's like, the N count on this one? I think there's like five or six in here. It's light uh, for, for feels Tarantino. Like it's five or six. Well, I mean, 100. that's the whole thing. He's an asshole. You poke at him for something that he thinks ridiculous. He's just going to start shoving it down your... Yeah. Like, everybody was like, he says it too much in his first three movies. And he was like, well, you know what? In 10 years, I'm going to make a fucking movie that's going to piss you guys it's also off. also like, you know, not for nothing, but he's writing about these characters who are bad people. Right. And guess what bad people well, do? I mean, say bad things. We mm-hmm. just saw Black Klansman. Yes. Where they say the N-word a lot. A lot. For the same reasons. Right. Yeah. It's because they teach it, you know, you're, people are just, you're not supposed to like these, these people. These are bad they people. They are bad people. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think, though, when we get into later Tarantino movies, and especially Django, I think that conversation can change. 
And we can maybe kind of look at that like more. Critically. It can get a bit gratuitous for sure, but for I sure. think that's you know we'll get there when we get there. Mm-hmm. But if there is one word to describe Quentin Tarantino, it is gratuitous, right? I mean, he's he's said before about things like you know you can use just the violence in this movie, which uh, by today's standards is not violent like at all. No, it's uh, it's still it's, pretty violent. You don't see anything really. You see that guy, this, that guy's skull. Where his ear should be. Right. You see the aftermath. You don't see him actually cutting it off, which True. like you would see that shit in like a PG-13. You would see it in, in like a, a saw. Yeah. Maybe, or yeah. even no, even something lighter than that. Like see somebody get their finger cut off and like you actually see it. And it's like could push you into rated R territory, but it's not something that's going to stop the presses and everybody's going to talk about it. It is disappointing that eighth grade got the R rating because of that finger cutting off scene. That's, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's one way to go about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's done tastefully. It is done tasteful, yeah. I mean, and that you know, everybody's been through that. They went through the the middle school experience. Eighth grade, cut yeah. saw somebody get and we all tortured. are missing a finger because yeah, of that. Mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed style. It, to be to be <laughs> earnest about it all, it's like the tact that Tarantino uses in demonstrating and communicating violence and tension is just so unbelievably inarguable that like that's why from Reservoir Dogs he got money for Pulp Fiction and from Pulp Fiction like he just blew up immediately because it was this you really break it down and it's like he cut he like moves the camera away you don't see the actual event happen you hear it and you're afraid because you know what's going to happen because it's been staged just right Mm -hmm. without you ever actually seeing any grotesque moment happen. Your mind fills in the blanks. Exactly and it's your mind and he he talks about like you know violence in movies you know, you can say you go to movies for escapism and violence in movies is just a taste thing. And he attributes it to like musicals. He's like in musicals, people are allowed to tap dance. People don't really do that in real life. And when they do, it's kind of fucking weird slash horrific. Uh, <laughs> it is pretty fucking, fucking horrific, horrific when you see I'm, someone I'm tap I'm dance in yeah. real and life. And he's <laughs> like, but it's OK for that, because if you go into a musical, that's what you're signing up for. And right. at this point now, if you're going into a Tarantino movie or if you're going into a heist movie, with a bunch of criminals, like that's what you're signing up for. Yeah, yeah. And I like the. I, I kind of like how you mentioned how you know there's a lot of pulling away from seeing what's happening. There's a lot of like you don't see the actual kind of like action, <clears throat> which kind of uh, revolves around kind of the center plot of the movie where the heist scene. You don't see it. You don't see it at all. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 bloodiest, goriest descript that they the characters describe happening. Is the one scene we don't see. Right. Your mind fills in the blanks exactly. of what and actually it, happened. And it during creates the heist. something yeah. way yeah. And they, they mention, they're like, Mr. Blonde went crazy and he did all this. And so then yeah. when Mr. He Blonde. Bam. bam he, how old do you think that girl was? Yeah, 20 yeah. years old? Yeah. Like, yeah. They paint, he paints this perfect picture in your head without giving you too much and having to be too showy about it because they didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And so when Mr. Blonde shows up Terrifying. and he's acting all cool. And he doesn't seem like a psychopath. You're like, that's fucking scary. Because we've heard how much of a psychopath this guy is by psychopaths, by criminals who are fucking nuts. And it's like, we're scared of him. And then when he finally gets left alone in the room for that torture scene, you're just like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Where's this movie going to take me? And Tarantino just builds on that tension piece by piece by not cutting away or cutting away and not cutting the camera and just showing you certain little things. It's amazing stuff that this is his first movie and he gets better. But the fact that this was his first movie and he's able to knock it out of the park in structure and tone like that out of this world nuts. So Mike, you're, you're 
probably the most informed person as far as trivia goes about movies in general. So I will put this question on you. Um, and then maybe we'll, we'll like take a little break after this question and then really break into Reservoir Dogs since we've uh, kind of talked around Tarantino Sounds stuff. Sounds good to me. That's to a this. good way to structure yeah. it. It's like we spend the first um, half kind of but talking. But how did this movie, do you know how this movie did like at the time and the place? Well, like when it came out in theaters, because yeah. you said it, it has a pretty small budget. So, you know, do you know how much the budget was and then how it did like in the um, in the box office? And then maybe even I know probably Tarantino, he has like a culty kind of following. Maybe it was like after the theater itself that he did the best. I don't know. Was it like a home release thing or was it act, was it actually like a blockbuster hit? It the wasn't theater? a blockbuster hit. It was a moderate hit, critically well acclaimed. Yeah, right. Also critically smashed. It was kind of even, but it was kind of depending well, I, on... I'm sure at the time it was like pretty divisive. Between, it's a very divisive yeah. movie for when it came out. This even is, his movies now are divisive. For, this is a movie you know. that... But you know what you're in for now? Yes. You know? Yeah. This is a movie that changed movies forever. And when it came out, people were either in tune with that and liked the idea or were afraid of the change sure. and wanted to blame this movie for everything wrong that was going to happen later. Right. You know, this, like we mentioned before, this movie created a lot of uh, copycats. Right. Where it's like quippy dialogue and talking yeah. about movies in your movie and ultra violence and stuff, wearing suits and stuff. Like, yeah. this created this kind of mojo that a lot of independent filmmakers have, especially that are around our age right now, where it's like, you know, Quentin Tarantino looked at Brian De Palma as his idol and he idolized him and learned from him. And now at this point, people our age, yeah. we grew up with Quentin Tarantino, you know, like I was the old, I'm the oldest here and I was only uh, six when Reservoir Dogs came out. Yeah. And it came out in 1992. Perfect age to see it really. Two. Perfect age. Yeah. Yeah. You really understand what's going on. Oh, yeah. Get it. Not that I saw this movie when I was six. I would have bad parents. But I feel like uh, even like, you know. Bert, Still probably would have come out the same. Yeah. Yeah. Burge, you and I like uh, did a little bit of like film schooling back in the day. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can't speak for you, but I know I tried to make a Tarantino or two when I was in like yeah. writing and stuff. When first well, trying to figure it I out, mean, you know. Reservoir Dogs especially, like he shows any prospective filmmaker you can do a lot with very little. Yeah. Uh -huh. And we've talked about this as well. We talked about it while we were watching the movie and I'm sure we'll come back to it. But like this movie almost plays out like a stage play. Like, yes. There are very few sets. It yeah. is mostly characters talking to each other on screen. There's not a lot as far as effects go. So like it totally would work and as e just a stage Even play. like the staging of like, you know, most of it, again, like takes place in one spot. But even the staging that you have of that spot, it's usually focused on, all right, so one Mr. Orange is over here in the corner other, and then right? these other people just kind of moving around and yeah. then yeah. enter stage left. Like the staging of it all is like, ooh, ba -ba -ba. Which kind of comes full circle with the way that he wrote Hateful Eight. With yeah, a absolutely. stage play in mind, mm -hmm. everybody movie it got a lot of because that's essentially a movie about uh, that's also after a heist kind of thing where it's like people trying to figure out who's the rat. It's kind of like a flip on Reservoir Dogs, right. which is why everybody was really excited when the script came out and then it leaked. And we'll get into all of that. Later. Yeah, well, yeah. probably like a year from now we'll start talking mm -hmm. about that. Probably, I feel like uh, they actually did stage plays of Hateful Eight. Didn't yeah, they? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like when it leaked, he was like, "I still want to get something out of this," so they did it. And everybody was like, "This is fucking." awesome we want to see the movie that you would have made and he's like I, 
All right. I feel like with uh, Reservoir Dogs, like you we're can... gonna get that rat fuck though that leaked this movie. Sorry, Robbie. <laughs> Let's wait real quick, Robbie. Before sure. we move on, uh, just to answer your question. So I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but this movie was made for one point five million dollars. And due to its success, or lack thereof, however much it might have been at the time, he was given $8 million to do Pulp Fiction immediately okay. after. So, there is that. $8 million okay. at the time of production is a lot of money. Because, mm-hmm. right, nowadays, yes. it's I mean, just like... What I mean, it's doing. a decent Probably amount of money for what he's doing. He's doing. Yeah. Not yeah. A lot yeah. Yeah. He, he, he classically sold the script to True Romance for the uh, Screenwriters Guild, like, norm pay, $30,000. He was going to take that to direct Reservoir Dogs because nobody would make it. And he was going to do it on a shoestring budget, black and white, 16 millimeter, $30,000, just using friends, single location. Yeah. And then somehow the script made its way into Harvey Keitel's hands because he was a friend of the wife of an acting or writing coach that knew Quentin Tarantino. And, and it got there. Harvey Keitel loved it. Called him up. Quentin, I love the movie. Is that what it sounds like? In real life, yeah. Oh. He's a very good actor. <laughs> Um, and then he like, was like, we have to fund this. And he produced it and he helped like help cast it and stuff like that. That's why he's a Mm co-producer and was able to get it up to 1.5 million. So this was a movie made for 1.5 million and it made enough to garner giving $8 million for Pulp Fiction. So a success, I would say like they're giving him practically eight times the amount of money that they were even, they weren't even willing to give him at the beginning. Harvey uh, Keitel had to get that. Right. Yeah, I would say that's a success for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to say earlier, uh, just to backtrack to the stage play aspects of it, I feel like there's a lot of things in Reservoir Dogs I think would work better on stage. Like, I actually think, like, some of the flashback scenes and also, like, can you imagine a, can you imagine a stage where you have Mr. Orange, like, writhing around and bleeding out while Mr. Pink and Mr. White are having that conversation mm-hmm. and you're seeing it at the same time? Right. And imagine, like, what you could do... Which is like both those things happening in real time and coming, mm-hmm. going back and forth. And then like, you know. Well, especially like Mr. Orange, that performance the oh, entire yeah. time, whether the camera is focused or that the audience eye is focused on him or not. Keep, he is acting the shit. Oh, keeping yeah. your eye on Tim Roth for the entire runtime of Reservoir Dogs is a very good treat that everybody should he give is, themselves. He is, he is having a fucking time. But I think that like, you know, you can even. I'm not saying that you need to flesh out that character more. What I'm saying is that in a stage play, I think there's even more you can do, even just physicality-wise. Yeah, like his performance, definitely. you know? And I think it'd be really interesting. And then I think with uh, kind of like the non-linear flashback parts of the movie, which I don't think are the strongest aspects of the film being critical. I think that like there are times where they feel a little displaced. Uh, but you could pull those off with a minor set change. Well, that's what I'm saying. On on stage, I actually think they would work better. Yeah. yeah. I think they yeah. would work. Like, even if you had like Mr. White, like, stand up in real time and then sit down and like it, it becomes a flashback. Right. All you takes his like, jacket off. Exactly, yeah. Takes the tie off. All of a sudden he looks completely different, messes and doesn't his that, And doesn't that sound just like more natural than kind of what we see in the media? I would be got it? very surprised if no one has tried to do this yeah. already. Yeah. I think somebody, I think if they definitely I would have, be yeah. extremely we surprised should be, We no should be honest here. It's like this isn't like a research topic that we were like, we definitely no. got to touch on that as we were watching the movie right. as we do here at Story Screen. We watched the movie. We watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and as we're watching it, we're kind of talking about like, oh, that's interesting. We should bring that up, blah, blah, blah. But we don't really yeah. look into anything unless I mean, we maybe, really. Maybe next we... episode we can find out whether or not someone has actually done sure. this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that'd be interesting. It'd be cur- I'd be curious. I bet like, you know, there might be even some like low budget, like 
It's like we're going to do a production of Professor. And if no one has, be sure that we will go undergo Dude, I that. Really my do that. my ass will do it. Yeah, I'll we'll write the it. fucking play. We'll do it. Uh, this that's a really good spot. Let's take a break. Yep. Sure. And we'll come back and we'll really start digging into Reservoir Dogs and uh, talk about this little movie a little bit. Uh, so we will be right back after this quick commercial break. Hey guys, Robbie here to tell you about a little article I wrote a while ago about that there Reservoir Dogs. It's an article that uh, really kind of dissects and talks about uh, the main point of action that we're lacking in the movie, which is the heist scene. And I kind of dive into that, but also just kind of talk about that Tarantino, kind of like the, the structure of the movie and kind of how this movie is the beginning of the DNA helix that he kind of starts to use for the rest of his filmography. Uh, you can find that on StoryScreenBeacon.com, where there's a bunch of other articles uh, by very talented folks over there on the website. Uh, we're going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino for the next year or so, so don't be surprised if you see some more articles about the like. Um, but yeah, check us out over on StoryScreen. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on that there Twitter, and we're also on iTunes. Thanks. <laughs> And welcome back. Uh, we're talking to Quentin Tarantino here on Cooking with Quentin. We need a jingle. We do have a jingle. They played it at the beginning. The, you, you can't hear the jingle uh, when we record it, yeah, but it goes. Was, the jingle wait, was right there. Was, you didn't hear the jingle? I thought this was live to tape. I thought we heard the jingle. Or maybe I heard the jingle. You didn't hear it? Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm jingle deaf. I forgot to tell you guys. I even forgot myself. I'm jingle deaf. The jingle is playing right now. You don't hear it? I can't hear it at all. That's I also weird, um, uh, okay? I'm I'm Hugh Jackman blind. I can't we have a sound we have a sound check view these things. Yeah, no, still can't hear it. Weird. So as you can tell, we love bits on this here podcast. So I'm not, I'm if this is your first ser- time, I'm fucking here, serious. If this is your first time with us, uh, yeah, this is kind of how they all roll. Um, but yeah, we spent the first half talking about Quentin Tarantino, how we feel about him, getting this whole miniseries kicked off. Talked a little bit about Reservoir Dogs and like how it came to be and what it is, how we feel about it. Now let's start kind of getting in there. And I figured, uh, we've kind of talked a little bit about the torture scene. Uh, but let's talk about another, uh, really great scene that everybody looks back to on there, which is, uh, the Mr. Orange, uh, flashback montage of him learning a story to be able to trick his way into becoming a part of this heist and all of the different variations that it plays and how it's kind of like this really good like testament to the power of story and movies and everything that goes in there including acting and uh writing and uh design and everything like that metaphor and meaning and everything that's the big one. You don't want to work up to that. You don't want to talk about that cold open. He's doing non-linear, just like Tarantino. Does. I mean, that's a that's the. Big, it's gonna work great for us as a, as a bit. <laughs> Our tangents are gonna work. Um, I mean, I I think that there's a couple big scenes, big moments, especially like you said, the diner opening scene and the ending as well. Yeah. Uh, that cold open is something. It's something else. You want to talk about that first? I mean, hey. Uh, I mean, I thought we could, you know, work up to that whole. Storytelling story within a story within a story kind of mm-hmm. thing. That's a that's a big one. Let's work up to it then. Let's talk about that opening diner scene. I don't want to yes no you. Well, you just there. did. I so. did. I did a little bit. It's fine. I'm gonna fuck you guys, Let's Robbie. You t- be the deal. You be the tiebreaker. Here. I think we can we can do this show non linear non linearly. We are gonna talk about movies. Let's talk about the Mr. Orange flashback. Um, because I think by talking about where Mr. Orange is by the end of the movie really contextualizes the entire movie when you rewatch it, which is something we just did. 
All right, go ahead. Uh, kind of everything Bridge just said, like he kind of brought up the bullet points of like why that scene is so special, and I completely agree. Um, for me, you know, I, I think that uh, I think the scene that really pulls it all together, uh, and we were kind of like yelling in joy about this while we were watching it again, is when uh, Mr. Orange is in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. He's in. He's in yeah. a fictional scene. That he that has did not created, actually happen. not actually happen, yeah. and we as the audience are seeing it happen, and then it ends with that that slow him just cleaning his hands, and then cut to him like dying in his own blood, essentially, you know, because mm-hmm. and we kind of learn by the end of like the movie that he is he may be a cop, but he's definitely not a clean cop because he killed a citizen after being shot by one, you know, like he's not, he, but we learn by the end of the movie that he may be a cop, but he's just as bad of a dude as all the other guys who are committing this crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets in over his head very quickly yes. you know, and he even notices that too. That's him like kind of getting ready to go see them after he's made his way into the heist and he's about to go to the meeting where they, every, they all get their names and stuff. And he's just like, they don't know. You're fine. Like, they're yeah. not going to get you. Like, it's absolutely fine. But he's like, has to like talk himself up into it. Mm-hmm. Right and, after he loads up on guns. Yeah. And just like gets all the guns yeah. just in case. They're all very guns. little and lots and of guns. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think for me, yeah, that's like the strongest aspect of the scene is just like, and I think that it's, I can't really think of too many examples of like the kind of, uh, you know, fast cut storytelling action that's happening. And like, you know, he's a character who, you know, in that scene, we see him transition from undercover cop to Mr. Orange. There's a transformation that happens there. And it's, it's brilliant that Tarantino is able to not only fit a character arc into the sequence, but it's an entire arc of a character that he saves for the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, it's brilliant. And we don't really, you, I think in other movies, if someone tried to, like, put in a character arc that late in the film, even if it is on the precipice of, like, a major turn, it might be kind of jarring. But in this movie, it's just not. It's perfect. And he really he is, like... set the, everything up. He's like, exactly. There's always these jarring cuts and everything, so that when you finally do that and there's the reveal, it's like, whoa, whoa! He but is still the, the, easy. the anchor mm-hmm. of the one character that has the biggest arc over the course of the film, because the majority of the characters in the film are just criminals who stay criminals the mm-hmm. entire movie and he's the guy that's laying down uh, unconscious for most of the movie right even if you're uh, i don't know if you guys can remember the first time you're watching the movie i can't necessarily remember the first time i was watching the movie but i remember uh, after taking a few years off and re-watching it when i wrote my article uh, about it which is on the story screen i remember it when you showed it yeah that was a fun screen well i was gonna say i forgot the twist and you're watching the movie and you're like steve buscemi is the rat steve buscemi is the rat Steve Buscemi has to be the rat. That's what I was saying the whole time. I mean, he is the one that's kind of in that retrospective context. You could look at it, and if you don't know how it's going to end, you could be like, this guy's acting really shady. He knows he a lot. He seems to be pulling the strings a lot and mm-hmm. pushing people into certain things, and he's like, mm-hmm. we should all be distrustful of everybody. Like, it would make sense. And he seems to be like, it's because he's a professional. It's because he's actually a very competent thief that he acts this way. But to an unknowing audience, he seems like kind of what we're saying. Someone's pulling the string. Someone who's like maybe inciting trouble. Like, how do I know you're not the fucking rat? How do I know you're not the rat? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, he's Iagoing it. Yeah, Iago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that even rewatching the movie, and I, I really do think that 
um, Tarantino is positioning Mr. Pink as kind of like a red herring. I think that, especially, I think that's really like what he is in the movie. Well, that's interesting because he wanted to play Mr. Pink. Quentin Tarantino wanted to play Mr. Pink. He kind of wrote the part where he wanted to play it. And he told Steve Buscemi when he came in to audition for it, he was like, look, I want to play this part. So if you want it, you're going to have to really kick some ass in this audition. And obviously, guess what? goodness that it was Steve Buscemi that took that part. Mm -hmm. Because the best thing that Quentin Tarantino does in all his movies is kill himself off quickly. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He's always like, he's oh, good. God, he's, well, in the diner oh. scene, which I want to talk about more later because we're talking about this now, but like, you know, he does a great job giving a CD monologue and setting oh, the he's stage. He's just fucking disgusting. Yeah, but, he that's, is but awful. that's why he does that, mm-hmm. you know? I love your movies very much, Quentin, but fuck, you are awful on screen. And not in a, in a, like, you're bad at acting. Like, you're just. He plays shitty characters. So gross. He's so good at playing disgusting characters. I'm thinking of, um, um, the vampire movie. Fuck. Oh, yeah. Dust till dawn. That's very true. He is. Oof. Ugh. Ugh. He's great in that. Even in Pulp Fiction, like, there's some quotable lines. Oh, disgusting. I was was just going to say, his acting alone in Pulp Fiction and in, um, uh, four rooms in the segment that he directed for four rooms mm-hmm. and as well in um what the fuck was the one that you just said jack how can i can't dust till dawn dust till dawn yes his acting <laughs> in those what the fuck did you say his acting in those me? movies are 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 uh, very good especially <laughs> in pulp fiction yeah, he, he like amazing owns. acting yeah he's yeah. in the same scene as harvey cartel samuel L. jackson and john travolta, john travolta <laughs> and he is owning yeah. everything and you know he doesn't have but the he, same acting he, it's, experience it's like. so funny because he typecasts himself as this disgusting human being oh, yeah. over and over again i think it's something i think there's like a there's something noble there because he's like if he's gonna make these actors say these like you know really atrocious shit and this really disgusting stuff he should be the guy who can go on camera and be like i'll say the worst yeah. things mm-hmm. i'll say or, the worst things like i'll or, take a bullet on this much i mean this is great because or, we have naturally segued into talking about the diner scene yeah yeah like natural segue yes. got us here Here's the thing. Is he, is this a heroic thing that he's doing or does he actually enjoy saying those kind of nasty, reprehensible things? Uh, my reading is a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. A little B. bit of column B. <laughs> I think it's column well. C. Sure. Which is he likes movies. He likes being in movies. He likes making movies. Yeah. And Harvey Keitel has this great line in an interview about how Reservoir Dogs got made, how he found it. And he gives all that information that I gave earlier on the podcast. But he also says, he's like, when I read it, I was like, oh, he's got to have like an uncle or like a father figure or somebody in his family that like is involved with this kind of stuff because like this dialogue pops and it's so quick. And when I finally confronted him about it and asked him like, who is it? He's like, oh, I don't have anybody like that. I just, I watch movies. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's his classic go-to answer for like, how did you get as good as you got at what you do? How do you get so good at writing scumbags? Yeah. Because he just watches a lot of movies and like he was big into like grindhouse grunge shit, which is just filled with disgusting dialogue, disgusting setups, disgusting executions, and just, they're just disgusting films. And if you can give them the benefit of the doubt, they can really show you a different way to approach actually trying to make something like that. And that's what he did. And that's what he still does. And that's why nobody else can top him because he even said once he's like, I made Reservoir Dogs 
and Pulp Fiction, just based off of all of the knowledge of all of the money that I spent on my own watching movies and buying memorabilia and studying shit. And now I get to do it for a job and I have a lot of money to be able to get more shit and see more shit. And it's just gotten better over the two decades, the two plus decades that he's been active. But I think it's it's an important part to bring up about the Quentin Tarantino conversation. If we're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino as a director, like that is a criticism of Quentin Tarantino along his career that he does love to grovel in that kind of disgusting place. And part of that is part of that as a director and as a writer and as an actor is how much of that is shades of yourself as a character and how much of that is the love of filmmaking and the love of putting yourself and the actors that you're working with as a writer and as a director in those disgusting places mm-hmm. to show like shades of those characters. And I think it's, it's an interesting ca- like and, conversation. And, and in that, it's like, yeah, you guys are right. Column A, column B type yeah. situation where it's a little bit of both. Like the Madonna yeah. thing is him taking a very popular idea. Everybody in 1992 had heard like a virgin. Sure. Yeah. Everybody knew who Madonna was. So he's taking this very popular thing. However, out of place it might seem in this scenario of these like criminals about to rob a bank at a diner and he's talking about Madonna. And that adds like this kind of vagrancy to it. And then he just starts talking about really disgusting things uh, in tandem with this very popular item. But in that scene, like he's the <clears throat> one that is saying those things out loud and everybody else in the room is act is like responding to him like like he's the asshole of your friend group that's saying those things. And like he firmly believes those things. But everybody else is just like. Fuck, dude, just shut the fuck up, yeah, man. Yeah, like, talking. Come on, you. dude. Like, you're. This is gross. Yeah. And they're all respond like, like, you know, uh, Mr. Orange in that scene. Just you can watch his face, and like you said, like <laughs> the whole time he's just like, oh, dude. He, he's the asshole of the among the assholes. Mm-hmm. He's the big asshole who's just mm-hmm. like, dude, shut the fuck up. Do you guys maybe see that as like. You know, Tarantino worked in a video store much like prior to his kind of filmmaking career. So he must have been a guy who loved talking about fucking movies, right? Of course. Do you think that maybe him being the annoying guy at the diner table, it's just like him being the annoying guy at like the video store where he's like, oh, hey, man, you're getting you're you're, you're checking out Jaws. Let me tell you about fucking Jaws right now. Yeah, yeah. You want to talk I, about Jaws? And that's a, that's and the, he's, he's like, like a human like, SNL skit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's you know? a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Like he I think recognizes he's self-aware enough. He's right. self-aware that he he is that person in the conversation but at the same time like he 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 wants to be that that person in the conversation but he is also self-aware that he is like the asshole at the table right so that i think that's an interesting thing to bring up especially in the first podcast that we're talking about Quentin Tarantino totally. this is going to come up again because it is like I mean, I, I had a <laughs> i mentioned to a friend that we we're going to start doing this series his reaction was ew like immediately like ew he's not a Tarantino fan and like there is a I think there is like a at the same time that we can talk about these Tarantino movies and we're obviously coming from a place of very much appreciating his movies Mm -hmm. also talking about kind of the gross aspects of his movies as well especially in a 2018 like uh, mindset like Like, you know we can have some criticisms for sure but it's also like you know we really like Quentin Tarantino not necessarily because we like what he's doing which we do but I think a lot of people that really like movies like Quentin Tarantino movies because they're by a guy who's like one of them. Yeah. This was a dude who worked at a video store and loved movies so much and would watch movies and loved talking about movies before podcasts were invented. And he would just talk about movies at 
his job and in his real life. And, and then he was finally able to break into the system and now he can make his own movies and he's making movies for people who like movies. Right. Like he does. He's a Cinderella story. He's how, you know, like he's how I feel. Like I struggle a lot being my age, still working at a coffee shop and like we're doing story screen. We're getting that off the ground. and It's going to be cool. But you know, like knowing filmmakers who come from a humbling place, who come from a place of just like, you know, like it's very humbling to know that Tarantino got his knowledge from working in a video store, and then he used that knowledge to make some of the most kick-ass movies I've ever seen. Right. You know, like it's 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 humbling, which is why when he goes off the rails or he plays these characters who are maybe disgusting or grandiose, like it it, it makes I, I always like am much more gentle and less critical about those well, things because you know where he comes from. I guess my point that I'm trying to make. If anything, and we're talking about Reservoir Dogs yeah. specifically, not necessarily like, trying to argue. He, with he's you. making, and I'm I'm not trying to like bring this up as a point of like arguing against Quentin Tarantino, but he's making a movie about scumbags, mm-hmm. yeah. and he is willing to write them as scumbags. Like yeah. these are people robbing a robbing diamonds from professional a professional criminal. They are Reservoir yeah. Dogs. They are. They are scumbags, and he writes them like scumbags, and he doesn't write them like heroes mm-hmm. or like suave or guys. anti-heroes. They're fucking assholes, mm-hmm. yeah. and he writes them that way, and he's not afraid to have them speak like gross, disgusting people. I really people. like that point that Bridges said, though, like not anti – they're not anti-heroes. No, they're not they're protagonists criminals. at all. They're they all not heroes. pieces mm-hmm. of shit. The, the only thing is like in the beginning of the movie, you think – that your protagonist might be Mr. White right. and Mr. Orange. But then you learn that, like, in the context of the movie, Mr. Orange is kind of a scumbag, even you without shooting that lady. Don't really want to root you know? for any of these no, people. No, they're bad people. But that's why the movie's so good. Yeah. I, I was going to say, back to the, the Quentin Tarantino and how he writes this dialogue for himself. I, I guarantee I would put all of the money that I possibly have, which is not that much, I like how I word it possibly have. I, was I don't say, even like, know if I do have I money. I definitely have $20 uh, and it's on the table. Let's say I'll match you on that. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> that every single character that he plays in all of his movies, he has a character from uh, some weird movie, whether we know about it or not, that he is basing it off of because he wants to be that character in the movie that he's making. Sure. He writes an I ideal role for himself and then he's right. like, I'm not going to do it. Or he's like, I'm going to be... This guy, like, like, but he probably has that for all of the characters, too. Like, if you're going to ask him, like, how would you describe the three main characters in Reservoir Dogs? You know, he's going to be like, well, Mr. White is kind of like uh, Gregory Peck in this movie. And like, oh, this guy's kind of like that in that one scene in this war movie that he was only in for a moment. Like, he's going to do stuff like that because that's kind of where he pulls all this knowledge from, from his kind of like disinstitutionalized form of education in film that he gave himself. Like he, you, everybody goes to film school or they learn film from reading books and they're all kind of the same books and the same experiences in film school. The real difference This guy is, yeah. didn't get that formal training. Because well, no one's telling him what to watch. Exactly. You know, we go to film school and we have some motherfucker who I really respect in front of the classroom being like, you should watch this, you should watch uh, some this. Talented, and, some talented, respectful motherfucker. Some piece of shit. Uh, telling us like... Fucking Coppola. Watch this, read this, analyze this, write this. And I think in some cases, for some of us, that works really well. But when you look at someone like Tarantino, and when you think about any kind of education in the arts, 
you know, you can pay a lot of money for a degree, which is like, you know, what some of us have done and what I've done. And my, I went to like a SUNY school to get my education about film. But, you know, Tarantino curated his own education, which is why we get these like kind of like grindhouse renaissances. And like, that's cool you know like mm-hmm. that's not your typical film school your typical film school maybe nowadays is different because we live in a post tarantino society but like you know like you wouldn't get like old school grindhouse movies to be a part of your curriculum unless you like i don't know once to someone like soon you purchase had, had like really a grindhouse cool class teacher, yeah. or had a sick teacher right it's him speaking the first line of dialogue <laughs> in his first movie mm-hmm. and having it be let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. It's all about a girl who dates a guy with a big dick. Before you even cut to any frame Ugh. or that's, anything. That's over black. That is a statement. Yeah. And back in the 80s, if you were learning in film school, they would tell you to not do something like that. Save it for later to really make Don't the character Don't talk work. about dicks in like the first 30 this seconds This is a character movie. who <laughs> is not... To. Film school 101. <laughs> this is a character who is not in this movie. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino's Mr. Brown is not in this movie that much, and he's the first one to speak, and he is speaking a lot. And we're giving almost zero exposition from what he's saying. The exposition that we're giving in the scene is how everybody's responding to him. Some are a little aggravated. That's the aggro. Some are playing it cool. That's the cool guy. But then we find out, no, the aggravated guy is actually kind of the guy trying to play it cool. And then the we cool guy is actually a psychopath. Well, also, they, they create distrust of Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink will not tip a waitress. And if you're someone who would not tip a waitress in any time period, you're a piece of you're shit. A you're a dick. You're a piece of you're shit. Fuck so, off, like, you know, I think that's kind of what plays into, like, you know, I think some of the reasons why you might think Mr. Pink could be the rat, if you're watching this movie for the first time, can stem directly from that opening scene where it's like, well, homeboy doesn't even fucking tip. Of course yeah, he ratted them out. That's cop Fuck move. that cop. <laughs> You know, or that's something a cop would do to try and be a scumbag. And we're like, yeah. well, I'm not gonna of tip. Of course, but. of course, a cop would tip. Mm-hmm. But if he was trying to be a dick, he wouldn't. And then Tim Roth, the actual cop that's Tips. pretending, is like, all right, he's convinced me. Like, Give me the dollar. Oh, like, yeah, 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 it's great. Mm-hmm. Also, real fun note: uh, after this movie came out, obviously Madonna heard about it. Uh huh. And she sent Quentin Tarantino an autographed copy of True Blue uh, that said, "Dear Quentin, it's not about dick." It's about love, love Madonna, which oh. I think is really cool, so and the, I would. Yes, love also, to. Dick is still cool. Dick is still cool. Dick, that ain't what it's about. Dick is not canon. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we really get off the rails when we start talking about Dick. No, really, that was really. really yeah. it, it just flustered me. Yeah, <laughs> it was just we take a moment, take a breath. I'm sorry. Um, so. I, I think another interesting thing in this movie that kind of kicks off a thing that uh, Quentin Tarantino is uh, was very well known for. Uh, it's a little different in this movie, um, but uh, the music. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino is very no- is very well known for using music in his films that have already existed. Whether he's using them as the score, using them as uh, like uh, like diegetically in the in the movie, time like, period appropriate music. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like he Kill Bill is loaded to the brim with like Ennio Morricone uh, scores from other movies that have nothing to do with Kill Bill. And he just asked permission. He's like, I really like that. Can I use that? Like there's almost yeah. zero original music in the Kill Bill movies. It's part of the, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he's, he is a postmodern director. We might come back to that during, uh, Inglorious Bastards. Absolutely. I yeah, have yeah. to, 
I'm going to assume that was not time period appropriate diegetic movie. Oh, and God, music. no. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't worry. You're going to watch it again. That's again, yeah. like that's this kind of like meta thing that he yeah. can do and that he can pull off so easily and that everybody else tries to do and to varying degrees of success. But yeah. in this movie, you know, it's all based around like uh, uh, Stephen Wright plays the voice of a DJ. Um Who's uh, doing a K Billy Super Sounds the of the 70s? Did the playing that good there, shit? Yeah. The Warriors came out before this movie, right? Yes, because I feel like the Warriors in in this movie with the kind of like DJ overseer. Oh yeah, very similar. Yeah, kind of like helping it along. So like yeah, interesting note. All of like the radio ads that's playing in the background and like the dialogue and stuff was the only thing in the movie that wasn't only written by Quentin Tarantino was also written by his good buddy, Roger Avery, who worked at the video archive video store with him. That's the guy that wrote Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino. Afterwards, they like got huge because Quentin Tarantino got huge and Roger Avery kind of didn't. And he felt Mm. fucked over. They had a falling out. And then Roger Avery is the guy that went on and like directed like a couple weird movies, like rules of attraction. And so we'll talk about that more with Pulp Fiction. But I I think it's really interesting that the radio dialogue is like the one thing in the movie that's co-written, that's co-written by another dude. And it really is kind of like the, the tape that kind of allows certain moments to happen and uh, certain moments to connect. A tape is a good word to the transitionary Mm -hmm. kind of piece to it. Well, confession to you two. I've never seen the Warriors. It's a very good movie. It's yeah. a very good movie. Never seen that one. Easy one to not see. Not hard. Yeah. Not no, hard. It's one I've meant to see for a long time. Uh, just having fun the right sidebar, time and place. The first time I saw it, I went to a, a little chain called Alamo Draft House. I've heard of it. You've heard Familiar, of it. Familiar, yeah. Um, I don't love the whole food during watching a movie thing. I think a lot of times it's very distracting. I like the whole beer thing during the a movie, The whole though. beer thing is very cool. Pretty cool. But So when I first saw The Warriors... And also the ratting on fellow uh, movie watchers who fun. are being a little bit too fucking rowdy. Shut the fuck up! Anyway, go on. So I was at the Warriors screening at the Alamo Draft House, and uh, I thought it was really cool how they showed like the old trailers for the movie. But I thought that like... St- that was like the optimal viewing experience for a movie like yeah. The Warriors, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because like you, they show you all the old school movie trailers and you get into it. And I was like, damn. It's really fucking cool. You would you would. I probably like it. Yeah. yeah. It, if I only mean, there was like, a context that I could drink and watch a movie with my friends and then talk about it. So... Uh, Mr. Pink in this movie, played by then teen heartthrob Steve Buscemi, now... Skeleton Team? Man. Um, <laughs> as, uh, hot, hot take. Oh, hot take. Mr. Still Buscemi. Skeleton Man back oh, then. One man. of the most talented actors working amongst us, and I am a scumbag for disrespecting him in such a way. Yes. But uh, Been meaning he can to watch, eat. Uh, he can eat. Um, Been meaning uh, to watch um, Death of Stalin. The most recent I hear it's so Buscemi movie I can mm-hmm. think of. I have a uh, I have that sitting on my watch list like forever, and I keep wanting to go to. I think it's, it's on Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's, on it's, Amazon. it's out there. It's it's really Prime. Yeah, you yeah. watch it now, yeah. I just I'm never in the mood for like the comedy when I like sit down to watch it. I'm do like, guys, do I want that? Do you guys That's fuck a time with, uh, and place kind of thing? Do you guys fuck with Veep? Because the no. writers of Veep wrote this movie, and I watch. I've watched the first like four. Or five I do not of Veep. fuck with Veep. Veep. Fox. Is that the one with the female president? Yeah. Uh, female female yeah. vice president. Still Even unrealistic. more unrealistic. <laughs> 2018 oh, like Sarah is Palin. garbage. Shut the fuck up, dude. Yeah, there's losers on both sides. Yay! Um, yeah, Steve Buscemi in this movie is, uh, as we mentioned before, he must have really kicked ass in his audition to be able to take this role from Quentin Tarantino because he, him in this role is 
great. No one else could have done it. No. And it's it's one of those things where you're just like, I can't imagine anyone else. And when you hear Quentin Tarantino almost did it, you're like, (laughs) well, maybe it'd be interesting to see what that was. But also like, no, no, like I want. We got the best version of it. I need my Buscemi. Yeah, if you like, me. if you went to like a million alternative universes and like saw how that played out, we are we. Uh, you mean if you're doing the Doctor Strange, like yeah, we exist in the one where it's like, well, this is the perfect one. Mm-hmm. one this one worked million. out. This one worked out. One out of a million. <laughs> this is like the brightest version of reality because Steve Buscemi is the one that played Mr. Pink in 1992's Reservoir Dogs. We had, take deal, it. we had to deal with the shitty president for the next few years, but you got... It's worth it. You got... <laughs> maybe. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've talked at length about how great Tim Roth is, and uh, Steve Buscemi, I think, is inarguably, like, just fascinating. In, he might be the most, like, standout performance. Well, because he's... It's an electric role. It's yeah. the role that has, like, the most dialogue, probably. I, I agree. Uh, uh, and he's just like firing it off at such a rapid pace. It's really Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel, and Steve Buscemi are like oh, yeah. holding this movie down. The trifecta. Like everybody yeah. else is tangential to these three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the only the reason that Mr. Blonde is kind of taken out of that equation is because he really is kind of a tool that's used to build tension. Wild card. And you're supposed to think he's a main character. He is a wild card. And then all of a sudden is ejected out, uh, you know, earlier on in the movie than you would think. And also, like, you know, he, there's tension with him because when he enters the scene, he doesn't enter, he enters the movie uh, as an antagonist to our not protagonist. You know what I mean? He enters the movie and the people who are, for lack of a better term, our heroes are just like, yo, this guy fucked everything up. It's your fault. Everything got fucked up. And then when they leave the scene... You blew it. We see him something. We see him do something atrocious. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of like he's Ooh, like alone, the villain alone at last. Well, he's like the villain among villains. Yeah, you know, like he really he's is. he's like the seediest douchebag. Well, and it's interesting too if you start to try and pick his character apart because you're really not given too much about his motivations and where he comes from. Yeah. You start to pick it apart, and you're like, this is the one guy besides Mr. White uh, that um, has a link jo- to that, yeah that Joe and Nice Guy Eddie know. And they trust to leave him at the warehouse while they go out and do the other stuff to go get the uh, the jewels. And the thing... Jewels? (laughs) That's not really documented Mm, on mic. No, it's not. I don't know. Should we even bother explaining it? There is a moment at the end (laughs) Oh, let us... Dear listener, let us take a moment to explain our best Just Let me me dive in and out of this little puddle. It's not I gotta take a swim in the lake. In uh, uh, the classic Star Wars story, Solo, classic that everybody Side likes, story. no problem at all. A big movie, like it. Uh, there is a moment where there is a decision that must be made on how will we ever be able to do this thing that we want to do. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. And uh, one character looks over silently, kind of like almost like kind of shouldering positioning and, and over Burge, there. When, when you and I were watching this movie with young Jack, mm-hmm. well, how did this go down? And and we see that it is a table of uh, very shiny rubies and, and different and diamonds um, and all of I, these different uh, very these, expensive stones. These are the good, good, good friends that I have here with, with Mike and Robbie that they sat through solo again. On yeah, my, we saw on my, for you. On my Sidebar. accord, mm-hmm. they did. Thank and uh, and and when that happens, even though we don't like talking during movies, <laughs> uh, Robbie could not contain himself, and very silently, just to just, just to us us us, he says, us. "Jewels." 
<laughs> and it is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever heard. And we have uh, constantly, we are constantly sending each other pictures of jewels from Always. time to time to There's cheer you up. There was, image there, was a, I, there was a moment when I was watching Ocean's 8. There was a jewels moment and <laughs> I was not watching it with you two. I was watching it with my fiance, um, and I just playing. she was she's not in on the joke, nope. but they brought it up, and I was just like, to no one, Jules. Jules. It's very funny. It's very good. It's, it's, good. it's really applicable uh, for it this movie, and also really... the next movie because there's a character named Jules. So we're gonna have a lot of fun. Oh, with oh boy, yeah. Jules. So good thing we caught the listener up to speed. They're um, in on Jules. the joke now. But getting back to. Mr. Blonde's character and the fact that they trust him. And here's the thing that I don't think is heavily alluded to that I only picked up on actually at the screening we did a little over a year ago yeah. is that this guy went to prison for four years and came out and they haven't really talked to him all that much and they just throw him on this job. And I'm fairly certain that he wasn't a psychopath beforehand. He was just a thief, uh, a goon. You know, maybe had a little bit of a violent streak, but you that know, prison fucked him up. Four that years in the he blew everybody away and that he likes to torture this cop because guess who put him in jail for four years? A cop. A cop. A cop. As they do, it's their job. It's what they do. I think that's a totally fair reading. And I think that it's like yeah. they have no idea what's going on. And even when Nice Guy Eddie shows up, he sees like, but we all see that Nice Guy Eddie has this kind of violent nature too, where he just blows the cop away. Right. So it can just be, it's like, we, these are our main characters, whether they are good guys or bad guys, but we maybe don't want to believe that they would go to such lengths that we would label Mr. Blonde a bad guy and Mr. White a good guy. Sure. I mean, Which goes even, right back to what I'm, I've been saying. Right, right, right. Like, Absolutely. Tarantino is really good at just writing these unabashed scumbags. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like these are not – this is not a movie about, about bank robbers who are the anti-hero. This is a movie yeah. about people who are stealing and are pieces of shit, unmitigated. Yeah. Like he just – I, and I don't know, like, at well, the he, time, he like... he ups the ante of garbage by, like, giving you these characters and being like, and now let's Mr. Blonde. And that's the interesting thing about watching this movie out of context is, like, I don't really know, like, like from a cinema aspect, like, at the time, what it's like watching a movie like this, which is, like, your main characters of the movie are complete scumbag criminals and like what it's like to watch this kind of movie where it's you know in the Mm -hmm. time in a place like how is it to go to the theater and watch a movie about scumbags like this it's definitely something that's newer on like the pop culture like revolutionary aspect of not just that being something different but also his style how cheaply it was made all this different stuff one a movie that pops immediately into my head is a movie from like 1982 or three called Breathless with Richard Gere, where he's essentially just like a criminal douchebag bad guy. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he like pops in a song on the radio as he's driving away, and it's just Richard Gere singing to the the music after he's done all of these terrible things, and we know he's a terrible guy. But in that moment, you're like, he's pretty cool. And it's like that kind of thing is always kind of ha- it's like uh, there's different levels of the bad boy thing. Like you could even kind of stretch that to Han Solo in Star Wars is like he's a criminal scoundrel scumbag. I, yeah, but I honestly like, wish it's turned him. into a heart of gold he's kind cool. of thing. Yeah. He's like th- like these guys never get that redemption. They're just like in it for the jewels. It yeah, been the it's, there's usually it the been, anti-hero sort of yeah. aspect to them. And it would have been cool if Solo wasn't an anti-hero in the movie Solo, but that's, you know. 
But I mean, that's a Disney movie. That's like right. there's there's no this movie has the rough edges to it that most movies are not willing to go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even Mr. Orange, the character who is the the cop who is like by all intents and purposes should be your main like redemptive character. We see very explicitly this character also is fucked. Mm. Like he shot that woman and he has that like moment of regret on his face. But at the same time, he is as, you know, implicit in this wrongdoing mm-hmm. as any of the other. Characters. I mean, that's the, when just the in over the head goes too far. Like you see when Mr. White blows the cops away, he's kind of like, what the fuck am I doing? This is falling apart. And he's kind of like, yeah, but he, he goes gets pushed in, to the he, gun. He goes in with two gun, a gun in each hand, mm-hmm. yeah. ready to rock and just blows those fucking cops out of the, out of the water. Yeah. And Mr. Orange is watching him do this. And it's right. Just like, and that's, he's sitting there going like, I'm culpable. I, like I'm, I'm just, culpable for this. Yeah. And he gets pushed to the, the next car and like then that happens and he's just kind of like out of it and well, he I was thinking, reacts I was and, it's, the, and he's just like well this is it now I'm probably gonna die I killed this person I've allowed all this stuff to happen this is just falling apart the look on his face is the look on our face as it happens in like real time right because at that I point mean, in the movie because it's you, it's you before at that, that time we you're, learn, you assume that he was shot by a cop Exactly, and and the and like that's almost the end of the movie when we see him shoot that woman because yeah. they go through the sequence of showing him as an undercover cop how he got his story straight, how he became a part of the team, and then he shoots that woman. So it's almost like us as the audience being like, "Oh, there's a redeemable character." Uh, never mind. No, nope. and like you guys, I bet you guys can remember his face perfectly, where he has the gun, he mm-hmm. almost reaims, where his face goes from just like, like the, the last drop of like I'm doing the right thing yeah his morality is absolutely gone gone. whether it was an accident or not that is that is such a extreme character moment where he is put in a place a position where he's shot by somebody an innocent person who he's trying to steal their car so he is like that person is acting in Mm self-defense and his reaction is to shoot that person back yep and like that is a very how different is he than a criminal very raw character moment for Mm -hmm. him where like he is supposed to be a cop he's supposed to be better than all these criminals he's acting differently than all these criminals and like in that true moment of character for him he shoots an innocent person and kills him so like i don't know that's that's as we're very i I, I have said at the top of this like reservoir dogs not my favorite quentin tarantino movie but as we talk about it more like he is really like peeling away the layers of these like scumbags and like showing very like raw and like the acting in this movie is mm-hmm. very is excellent, like mm-hmm. on everybody's part. This is one of the movies too that I kind of geek out about set design and stuff. That's kind yeah. of like my hidden little thing that I love. Yeah. Movies that I rewatch a lot. I love picking out like you pointed things. out a really I was great pointing thing. Out some this movie. To you. Man, yeah. it's like and and the space that they they act in most of the time is just this kind of like open warehouse. But like there is such a vividness to the warehouse that mm-hmm. they're in. Mm-hmm. Like it just in my head, I haven't even seen Reservoir Dogs that many times. I've probably seen it maybe like three or four times sure. tops. Like normal person. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> sure. I think I've only like, seen it four. But times. that space yeah. is very like I can picture in my head very vividly the and I mean we just watched it, so that's one thing. But still, like <clears throat> I can very vividly picture the scene. Tim Roth on that kind of like like ramp. elevated ramp, the even the like the scene 
um, where Mr. White and Mr. Orange are talking like in the bathroom kind of scene with like the, the sink in there. But then he also has to go to the commode, which is like go down the hallway, turn right, go up the stairs and then turn left. Mm-hmm. Like it's very, very strong set design. It, it was very interesting for me because when we did the story screen screening of Reservoir Dogs, how we did it was is that we transformed this uh, distillery in Beacon, New mm-hmm. York, into the warehouse uh, under the idea that it was the crime scene now after the events. Yeah. And so I went through Reservoir Dogs and picked out all these little things like trash cans, water jugs, milk crates, ladders, ear, yeah. then a chair with duct tape on a cutoff ear. Yeah, and one of, my, one, of the, that key one of the funnest things I did that only a few people uh, noticed was because um, he throws the ear and I hid the ear. The ear's not in the crime scene. I hid the ear underneath like a thing that you passed by to go to the bathroom and the bathroom was up this ramp. So right there is another big pool of blood mm-hmm. that kind of caught everybody's eye. Cause uh-huh. that's supposed to be the ramp that he died on. But the ear was just right off to the side. And I thought that, that was like a lot of fun, but it was like cool. Cause it's the design of the whole thing. There's things wrapped in plastic, things wrapped in cardboard paper. And it's just got this very kind of dead, feeling to it this stillness where nothing's been there for a while and now this terrible thing is about to happen they're in purgatory they're in the stasis after this job because that's like where the movie takes place is like if we're not going to get the heist scene we get the aftermath and what happens in the aftermath is waiting Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Steve Buscemi's character pain. draws so much attention to it. He's like, "We're we're goofy for waiting here." Yeah, what the fuck are we doing? Why are we know? sitting here just waiting for the cops to show Bird, up? You should you should talk more about um uh kind of the scene that you pointed out to us during the movie with the uh, the different jugs. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, there's a scene. Yeah, uh, I never noticed on. that before. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. brilliant. when you notice it. It's really cool. Yes. And it's uh, it's the scene earlier on where Mr. White and Mr. Pink are talking to each other in the bathroom. They've left Mr. Orange it's out there. It's not the bathroom. It's like a like a Chemical washroom. Washroom. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then yeah. he has to go to the bathroom. Because all right. it has is like a yeah. sink yeah. and a mirror that uh, Harvey Keitel is like like combing, combing his, his hair. hair. Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah. But it's not a bathroom because mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi leaves to go to the bathroom. Go to the extra bathroom because yeah. he's got to take a squirt. The commode. A squish. Yeah, the squirt. I don't want to talk about yeah, this. Takes, he's got to take a squirt. Bad. Is, that a sh- is that like a real bad shit or like a piss? Could be either. Yeah, sure. Depends. Post a little bit of column A, a little bit of column, column B. B. Yeah, right, there sure. you go. <laughs> um, yeah, and if you see at one point, there are jugs on the table and what they are is uh, three pink jugs a white jug and then some space away from them, two orange jugs. And it's the idea that like Mr. Orange is away from them and Mr. Pink is more powerful than Mr. Orange in the moment. And that, and that the only thing standing between Mr. Pink and Mr. Orange's fate is Mr. Mr. White, White. one single jug. It's like this dumb little thing that you're just like, that's fucking crazy. Like that's so cool. Like the main I, I don't even know if it's on purpose at this point. Oh, it, must, it has to be. It has to be. Who knows? But like yeah. the main conflict in this entire movie is Mr. White standing between Mr. Orange and not even just Mr. Pink, but everybody. Like everybody. Everybody, yeah. everybody, yeah. And to end the movie on Mr. Mr. Orange telling Mr. White, I'm a cop. Yeah. And, the, and then Mr. Orange just fucking just, just – just beside so painfully himself. beside yeah. himself, putting the gun to Mr. Orange's head mm-hmm. as the cops come in. Because at the end of the day, he's a scumbag. And at the end of the day, like, what does a criminal do in those final moments? I'm about to get murdered. I'm about to get gunned down. What am I going to do? 
You but just ruined just my life. Of, I'm going to kill oh, you. The betrayal, the amount of yeah. pain on his face. Oh my and God. They, they do it off screen as well. And they don't explicitly do it where like you see Mr. Mr. White pull the trigger on Mr. Orange. Like he's, you know that he's got the gun to his head and you know the, the, the scene is on him and you hear a bullet go off before the cops start shooting. You like, know. you know, but like, ah, oh man, that's a powerful scene. It's great. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that uh, – oh, I'm sorry, Bridget. No, no, no. I mean, I was actually about to uh, start saying, like, was there anything else that anybody kind of really wanted to cover? Because we're kind of getting towards the end here. Just to – Yeah. Just I mean, that, kinda, that was my main, kinda, like, mm. main final, like, takeaway point is yeah. how so much of the movie is about Mr. White standing between yeah. Mr. Orange and everybody else and, like, protecting him and, like – no, no, no. He's a good kid. He can't be the rat. He's a good kid. Mm-hmm. I think that's like, kind of really the last sticking thing up for him. I want to like if there is a conversation to be had, the last thing I'd like to talk about is like what how do you guys think that morality how do you guys think that like morality between like defending someone just based on their word means versus like them actually being a liar, you know? Cuz I think that I think it's kind There's, of an honor among thieves kind of when thing. When you're watching this, when you're watching this movie and you know so much about Tarantino and you're coming at it with this like Tarantino esque eye, it's hard to kind of push all that aside. And I think what's at the heart of the movie is kind of what we kind of have been alluding to is just like what is Mr. White to Mr. Orange? What is Mr. Orange to Mr. Mm-hmm. White? And these two have like more of a close relationship than anybody else involved because yeah. Mr. White tells mr orange his real name he tells him where he's from like he has like mr orange really is cracking into mr white because his job as an undercover cop is to, to find that. out as much about these criminals as he can mm-hmm. so that he can kind of bust them and like he is playing off that like there, there's the sort of like um undercover cop getting too close to the subject kind of thing going on there mm-hmm. but we only get it from the perspective of mr white getting too close to mr orange and like like he is this career criminal and we know that from the scenes where he's interacting with Joe that like he is he's been around for a while like this yeah. is not his first rodeo. I mean the age of the character is very specific exactly yes. he's slightly younger than Joe but uh slightly older than everybody and else he calls, in the crew he even calls besides Joe, Mr. Blue who's just like old he yeah. calls Joe uh, papa at one point <laughs> as well they're very good um, friends. Yeah, yeah. So he's like been around Even for Mr. a while. Orange, he's like, like up on that. he yeah. he is like he's been around for a while. It's not his first rodeo, and he but he's still like. And this is another thing that I think that speaks to how powerfully this is written. Like there is a connection between the two that is obvious and that is inherent, but is not like explicitly built. It's just there. Mm-hmm. Like you know, because like from the first, and this is something else we haven't really talked about, but like. You get the diner scene where they all interact and they're having breakfast together. And then the the um, kind of like intro credit scene rolls where you get the naming of everybody, including everybody, <laughs> including like Mr. Blue, who is like only in that opening diner scene. Mm-hmm. And then the next scene is Mr. Orange in the car who's shot mm-hmm. and he was freaking the fuck out. And Mr. White, who is trying to calm Mr. Orange down. Mm-hmm. And, like, that scene just builds so much. It, it like, it immediately builds a, a relationship between the two. While also setting the stakes and the tone of the movie. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really, like, sets, like, 
Mr. White is going to protect Mr. Orange throughout this entire movie. Do you guys uh, think and that And then Mr. to end on that betrayal is just, oof, man. Um, two things of heightened interest real quick. Ooh. One, I like that. I know it's probably a Screen Actors Guild thing, but I do like that it's and Tim Roth, and he's the only one that's separated from everybody else. Yeah. Might be on purpose. Who knows? Who knows? Number two. To me, it's just he's like maybe... And this is me not really knowing. He was getting pretty popular at the time, time, so it's very possible. Yeah, like he's the youngest, pretty much, Mm -hmm. of everybody. Like fresh on the scene, everybody freshest face, probably. Yeah. Um, The have you guys ever heard of City on Fire? Nope. Is that so? For some of our listeners right now, they've been waiting for me to mention this the whole time, and I guarantee it. Oh, finally. City Please. on Fire is a 1987 Hong Kong crime film directed by Ringo Lam. Does it have a dope soundtrack? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's not the one you're thinking movie. of. No, it has a shit soundtrack. Um, okay. <laughs> this is a movie that uh, Quentin Tarantino has been accused of ripping the fuck off with Reservoir Dogs. Because really? there is a, a relationship, and a lot of the plot points, too, are from this movie. But the main thing is that the ending is a Mr. White type character with a Mr. Orange type character who has been wounded for most of the movie, who is an undercover cop, and Chow Yun-Fat plays the Mr. White character, and he is a criminal who has been going to bat for him the whole time while everybody around him gets killed, and it ends with... A shootout. Him, Mr. Orange character, telling the Mr. White character that he's a cop, him crying, people showing up, cops being like, Drop the gun, drop the gun, him shooting the Mr. Orange character, and then the cops blowing him away. Oh. It is deadly. Is that plagiarism or is that an homage? It's, who knows if anything's ever been settled with it. It was kind of this like urban legend kind of thing to me for a while until I actually finally watched City on Fire and it is fucked up. Uh, side note, is City on Fire as good as Reservoir Dogs? No. Which, you know, what? if Take that matters to you, it's, matter. yeah, yeah. it's a difference between lavender and chamomile tea. Which, which, which one would you rip like? something lavender, off, but bitch. you do it better, is that still plagiarism? Uh, <laughs> lavender, bitch. Mm. But uh, yeah, Robbie, what were you going to I definitely want to get that one in there because that's, that's interesting. Uh, but I didn't want to get it too that. early oh. because it's definitely something that kind of changes your perspective on the film. A little bit. And I didn't want to kind of damage the goods too early. What hey, was... Guillermo won that little lawsuit between, you know. Oh, the Shape of Water thing, <laughs> ripping off a play. Difference. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Pretty specific, but Pretty uh, specific, sure. but he still, Guillermo still got his Oscar. Uh, what I was going to bring up, and I'm trying to still wrap my head around what you just said to me. It's, it's nuts. Kind of cr- it's you gotta watch crazy. it. You gotta watch the I'm scene. Down, I'm down nuts. to watch it, yeah. Uh, I was gonna bring up, uh, do you guys think Mr. Or how much... And I mean this in the in the context of the film. How much do you think Mr. Orange was acting when he was shot in the car? When he's writhing in pain, he's like trying to talk to like trying to talk to Larry, trying to talk no, to Mr. Wright. I, I thought like, about what, that because like, what are we what what like degree of him being Mr. Orange or being the cop is happening in that scene? There was there was uh, there was something I thought about specifically because like you see people get shot in movies all the time. Yeah. And you see people deal with gunshot wounds in movies all the time. But it's very rare that you see anyone, like, play it up as much mm-hmm. as Mr. Orange is doing. Which in is Reservoir. believable enough if the movie's is going like, for it's, a... It's one of two know. things. It's like, okay, 
is this Quentin Tarantino approaching somebody having a gunshot wound more realistically? Where, like, if you get fucking shot in the gut, it probably sucks ass. And, like, the most of the time when you see somebody get shot in a movie, it's like, oh, oh no, I'm shot. But not like, yeah. I'm if not John like, Wick, ah! If John Wick gets shot in the belly, he gets up and does, like, five Yeah, yeah, moves, exactly. And then he's, he, just like, he, fucking, he's, he's like, like yeah. this kind of sucks, but not, like, that bad. My belly's been totally So is shot. that, like, is that Quentin Tarantino really writhing out, like, the more realistically, like, it fucking sh- sucks to get shot mm-hmm. at all, much less shot in the gut, or... It, that's a good point as well. Yeah. Like, is that Mr. Orange, like, kind of twisting the knife on Mr. White and, like, playing up the kind of sympathy aspect? Because mm-hmm. I think, like, you know, when we get to the warehouse scenes and, you know, Mr. Orange is just like, hey, man, just take me to the fucking hospital. He's a good kid. Right now. He's a good you kid. Know? He's a good kid. Yeah. So, like, you He's know, shot, man. He's a good kid. But the thing is, even in that scenario, is that Mr. Orange being, like, Hey, this Larry guy <laughs> I don't give has a sh- has a soft spot for me. Yeah, this dude will definitely throw me on the side of a hospital yeah. if I beg hard enough. And also, I don't give a shit if you put me in the hospital because I'm not gonna get arrested. I'm a fucking cop. Hey, so I think it's like I don't think that there is an answer. I asked that question knowing that I don't. think I that mean, there is I an genuinely answer, think that the two care about each other. That's what makes the ending so heartbreaking. Is, is that, one, yeah. Mister Orange is just like I'm gonna probably die anyway. I've just been shot again. The cops are about to show up, and like I'm not gonna make it. And he's yeah. just like in this last moment, I just need to tell him the I truth. I guess yeah. that makes sense. The ending kind of sums up that drama. But I just, I, I just am curious about yeah, like, where that character's head's at in the like, car in the beginning of the movie. Watching know? that, the f- probably the first time I watched that movie, I kind of did think, like, man, Tim Roth really fucking... Chewing it. Moses, Moses, well, Moses. Well, and that's also that anything in a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's not the actor just doing it. Because no, he's very not. controlling. Like, and that's, I think, I'm answering sure. what you're saying is it's a stylistic choice, whether it's intentional from the character's point of view or it's the sure. first moment in the movie that you Whether see. Whether it's contextual of the character mm. doing a fast one I mean, it's the not. first yeah. scene in the movie, really. Like, the opening Madonna thing and everything, that's like an overture. That's like, yeah. here's the tone of a what we're going to do. It's a cold yeah. open. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you cut to the real story and that's... You're in a bloodbath. Yeah. People are screaming. You don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, you're like, "I wait, I thought they were going to go do something. What Where? What happened? I mean, structure-wise, the movie explodes with an inciting incident. And that is, you know, I think in our podcast a lot, like, there's a lot of times where we talk about exposition and how it's used properly. Whereas a movie like Reservoir Dogs, where it just, like, literally, like, nuclear bomb very much explodes show with, tell, yeah yeah it mm-hmm. just explodes with an inciting incident and it almost like you get everything out of context it, it sh- like the whole it heist, shatters like the fabric of like what a first act should be yeah it literally mm-hmm. and and then you I as mean, the author like, should be together. like technically yeah. the end of the second act is when you t- learn about mr. mr orange no, when mr orange gets shot and then yeah. we go back and like the right. third act is only like five minutes long it's yeah. picking up the pieces the, of everything. The, yeah. the structure of the movie is it, it makes you can break anything down to three act structure, even if that's not the artist's intent. But like the the structure is mean, more like a five act movie, yeah. This one, I, I just it. I think yeah. it's more of just kind of like a, there's almost aspects of it that are like anti movie. Like there's just times right. where we just kind of like. But if you, if you had to try and like put something to it, it's probably like breaking down the flashbacks. It's more well, yeah. Acts. It's more like a stage play in that way. Yeah. If you want to break it down, and then like stage play act structure is. The bit. flashbacks are almost like act breaks. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to film school. 
Um, Jack I do specifically. Science. I do specifically. of themselves, Jack. I mean, an or act, act break. break. Um, it's called an intermission. I don't know. I didn't steal. Well, yeah, I wish whatever. Um, I do specifically remember uh, pretty soon after Django Unchained came out, Jamie Fox. Um, doing an interview where he was talking about working with Quentin Tarantino on Django Unchained and like little tiny, like micro improvisations going on on set. Did you see this? This, this Uh, I don't think I saw the specific one that you're talking about. And like Quentin Tarantino freaked the fuck out. I bet. And was like, no, what the fuck? Like he took Jamie Foxx aside and was like, what the fuck are you doing? this is not how I wrote it. You mm-hmm. do it like this. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Foxx was like, he was an amazing director to work with because like he has such a, a specific vision. vision. Yeah. But like any sort of like improvisation, any kind of like going off the script, anything like acting like on your own, Quentin would freak the yeah, fuck sure. out. Well, he certainly comes across and, as a and, control freak. And he's Jamie the Fox, biggest brain in the room. That's and, the thing. That's not to say that like he's a terrible director like because Jamie Foxx in the interview says like, I would 100% work with him again. Yeah. Like, no doubt. Yeah. But, like, any time we tried to go off off script Put at all, he freaked out. Good. Which is goes back to, like, the Tim Roth thing. Like, he was acting like that because that's the way mm-hmm. Quentin wanted to. And, I mean, to. there is a huge divide in the amount of control that Quentin Tarantino can hold over an actor between 1992 and sure. when Django and Chank came out. Yeah, for sure. But it's definitely like, I agree with you. But, like, that's probably I mean, very much there. But that's an interesting conversation as well is like, is that Tim Roth really playing that up? Because, because Quentin wants to portray what it's like realistically to be shot in the gut or because Mr. Orange is trying to get in the head of I'll, Mr. White. I'll say this. If there's any actor on that set that Quentin Tarantino could kind of put the control vice grip around definitely tim ross tim ross. yeah for sure 100 everyone yeah. else you might be like all right go do what the fuck you want yeah like harvey Keitel. i'm just, really I'm just harvey making Keitel a movie i can't the producer much. of his first movie yeah. probably not gonna like rein him in exactly but tim roth who is also like you know is the is is the precipice of action in the film like i bet that he was able to be like you do it like this mm-hmm. especially if it's the opening of the movie absolutely yeah, yeah. very important yeah yeah um so I think that about wraps up Reservoir Dogs. And the fun thing about this Whew. miniseries is that we get to like go back to it and stuff like that throughout. So probably not th- the last time you'll hear us no, mention Reservoir not. Dogs. I no. think it's uh, safe to say that it's like this will be mentioned again. And I, I think this went well. I think so, too. Hey, like I said, Reservoir Dogs, not my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I appreciate it a lot more now that we've like sat down and talked about it for an hour. Right. I, uh, I really it's not my favorite Tarantino movie, but it's like one of my favorite movies, if that makes sense. Like. I love Reservoir Dogs. I think Reservoir Dogs is like, it's one of the strongest directorial debuts of any director. I think it's it's so important to film, and I, and I really have like a deep affinity for this movie. Hey, I mean, you know, I named my company uh, Cornhole Team Reservoir Cobs for a reason. So we know you're committed. Because mm. it's a good pun. It's a good pun. But you, also you it's like, a pretty good you like movie. The, you like the puns? I'm in it for the puns. No fun. No fun. Just all pun. pun. All pun. Yep, that's me. The jokester. The jokester. That's where the name comes from. It's ironic. Yep. It no fun, sense. all pun. The jokester. So, guys, thank you so much Write for that listening. On my, on my tombstone. <laughs> you can go to storyscreenbeacon.com, check out a bunch of articles, reviews, more podcasts, and stuff like that. Find us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Where you're listening to this one right now. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at story underscore screen underscore beacon. 
or follow us on Twitter at story underscore screen. We also have a Vimeo account, which we mentioned earlier, where you can go check out some recipes and stuff like that. If you're listening to this. Now it's a cooking Vimeo Now account. it's got a cooking app. In it. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this after this came out, there's probably a couple more up there. You can check them out. We invite you that if you're kind of going into this as like there have already been a few released, maybe uh, you rent a copy of the Quentin Tarantino movie. You take a look at the recipe. Your library's some, probably got them. Invite some friends over. Mm. Uh, cook, cook, cook with your friends. Watch the movie, eating the food that we kind of came up with, and uh, you know, then maybe listen to our episode and kind of see where everybody wow, falls just, on you it. You just described a really good night. That sounds yeah. fun. That sounds like a that fun sounds like time. a good time actually. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just doing it. You like, guys should record a podcast after you do it. Also. And then you record a podcast. <laughs> we'll listen to it. We'll record a podcast and reaction to that, and we'll just keep going. Pooping back and forth forever. Mm-hmm. Pooping back and forth. Um. Yeah, so thank you so much. We're excited. Uh, the next episode is we're going to be covering uh, True Romance, Yay. which was uh, chronologically the next movie to come out uh, and you know was written beforehand. Quentin Tarantino wrote True Romance, Natural Born Killers, then Reservoir Dogs. We'll talk about it. Sold True Romance. Couldn't really get Natural Born Killers sold for that much, but was eventually able to get it sold, made into an Oliver Stone movie. But uh, we'll eventually get to that one. So True Romance coming up next if you want to... Uh, Catch that in the next month to uh, be ready to listen to our episode because we obviously just dive right into the spoilies right away. Um, and uh, Robert, Jack, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for much. So thanks much for having us. Yeah. Wow, no, th- no, no, it was my it was my, for, my treat for putting in the extra effort for me. I appreciate it. Delish. Of course, of course, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, I guess we'll see you uh, next time here on Cooking with Quentin. Hey, yeah. yeah. I just realized uh, this pen that I have that I stole from work last night that I've had in my pocket since that I decided to use in case I wanted to take notes and then tell me where that's, what store that's from. Completely by accident. Uh, that's from the Reservoir in Beacon, shut, New York. Shut the, shut the crazy. fuck up. While you were talking, I was looking at the pen and I was like, I, you're holy making, you're shit. You're making some faces. Because well, I, I was shocked. I was like, <laughs> did I do something weird? <laughs>